We're in Mark chapter 11 today, uh, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your own copy of God's Word, you can follow along, or it's on the screen for you. Let's hear God's Word together today. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of His disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the chance to come before your word. God, uh, maybe this, one, this passage this morning is familiar uh, to some. Um, as we think about uh, the last week of your son's life here on earth and the start of this with this great um, moment of celebration as he came into Jerusalem. God, may its familiarity um, breed in us a sense of, of comfort and of joy, uh, but not a sense of um, just letting it pass by. God, may we have ears to hear and eyes to see uh, what you would have for us today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Back in January, uh, a guy you may know as Prince Harry released a, a, a memoir of sorts called Spare. And from what I, I googled about it, it sold 3.2 million copies in the first week after it was released. It set all kinds of records for sales uh, within 24 hours and a week. And it's on pace to be one of the best-selling nonfiction books uh, of all time, which is, you know, mind-blowing uh, to me in many ways. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's a lot that goes into that. If you followed their story or know much about kind of his, all the ups and downs of the British, British monarchy, but it's just uh, one of the um, telltale things about how the, the British monarchy, for a number of reasons, captures people's attention all around the world. There, there is this sense that whatever they do, the whole world sees it and takes interest in it, no matter how mundane it may be. We have this fascination with the royals of the British family. They're wealthy, they're, they're famous, they're historic. In certain uh, realms, they are influential. And that is odd in many ways because in the 21st century, we don't have monarchies anymore. And maybe that's why we're interested in this one, is because it's kind of this leftover thing from past ages. And we don't live in a world that has kings and queens. Uh, and as a, a non, I'm sure, you know, if, if you were British, if there were people that were British here, you would probably defend the monarchy. As an outsider looking in, I don't get it. Like, I don't, I don't really understand what it's about. But from what I gather, it's, it's kind of this um, symbolic headship of, of the country which means it's a lot more pomp than substance, right? 
the king of England has no authority to either make or enforce laws on his own. <laughs> he can express his opinion, and his opinion probably carries more weight than mine, but the United Kingdom is a democracy just like the United States is. So just because the king, King Charles, decides tomorrow that he wants to set certain some way, it doesn't mean it's going to happen. It has to go through a process just like it would in our own country. So he is a face and a name, but he is not a king in the sense of what a true king would be or would have been in historic times. In many ways, the idea of royalty and monarchy is, is lost on us because we don't live in a day and age where that's true anymore. We don't, we don't have those. And that's a good thing, right? Democracy as a, as a nation, national form of pol uh, uh, political structure is a really good idea. Uh, we are fallen people. And anytime you give absolute power to somebody, it's not going to go well, right? So it's, it's wise that we've done this. But when we come to the Bible and we read about kings and kingdoms and, and the way the, the, the structure was, we, it's lost on us to some degree. There's a degree of separation because we don't really understand. We haven't lived under a true sovereign king in a political way that so many people in the ancient times did. In the ancient times, kings were normal. And what the king said went. What he said was law. And so when we meet Jesus in the gospel accounts and we read passages, especially like this one, where Jesus is clearly displayed as the king, there is a, a, a bit of a, a distance for us to gather, to, to cross over. It, it's hard for us to kind of comprehend what it means for him to, to be the king. And so I thought I'd get, get our, try to get our minds heading that way by again thinking about the British monarchy, but maybe as the opposite ways. In all the ways that King Charles, or King Charles? George? Charles, Charles. I said it and it sounded funny. Charles uh, is king. Uh, it's kind of the opposite of the way Jesus is. King Charles has fame. He has wealth. He has status. He has kind of the glamour of the royal life, but he has no power. And Jesus was the exact opposite on earth. Jesus came to earth and really didn't have a lot of fame. Different time, there were some crowds, but not really famous in the sense that the king is now. He didn't, certainly did not have any wealth. He certainly had no status. He was very poor, very, very bottom of the room. And yet, he had all power. All power. Today we are kind of turning a page, turning a corner in Mark's Gospel as we've been walking through the second half of this book. And we enter now into the very last week of Jesus' life. And if you're keeping track, yes, we're only at Mark 11 and there are 16 chapters, which means a lot of Mark's Gospel is devoted to this last week of Jesus' life. And this chapter, as Jesus comes into the city, you can't miss the clear picture that Jesus is portraying Himself rightfully so, as the king. He is coming into the city as the king. And if we expect to find in him somebody who looks like a British monarch, we're going to be disappointed. <laughs> he isn't going to look like King Charles. He's not going to be a famous figurehead with affluence and glamour. There's not going to be paparazzi. There's not going to be all the, the drama and best-selling. Well, no, it's a best-selling book. There's a, there's a similarity. Best-selling. Never mind. That wasn't in my notes. Uh, but we are going to find something better. Find something far better. We're going to find somebody who is a true king. 
a just king, a righteous king, a holy king. We, we have this, this desire in us that, that's usually good, uh, that we don't want somebody like a, a, a king, king Charles telling us what to do all the time. That wouldn't be good. But the negative side of that is that if we, if we don't recognize that it is good for somebody like King Jesus to tell us what to do, we're going to miss something important. Jesus is the true and just and right and good and holy and perfect king. And he has come and he does reign over all things. And he invites us to submit our lives to him. That's the point of this triumphal entry passage. The triumphal entry is the the name we traditionally give to this part as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And traditionally we celebrate this on the Sunday before Easter. We call it Palm Sunday as the the people gathered around waved palm branches as Jesus came into the city. We're going through Mark slowly and if I tried to preach all of Mark 11 through 16 in one week, we just would never get there. So I'm starting Palm Sunday a little early. Hope Hope you'll be okay with that. When we, uh, when we look at, at this passage, we, we have to recognize uh, something that's pretty miraculous about it. In, in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different accounts of Jesus' life from different perspectives and different vantage points. And so they, they capture all kinds of different details. And some really important things that happened in Jesus' life only show up in one or two of them. Like Jesus' birth, that's pretty important, right? Only makes it into two of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke. Jesus is some of his most famous miracles, turning water into wine, raising Lazarus from the dead, only in the Gospel of John. Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in its entirety is only in the Gospel of Matthew. For all, for all kinds of different reasons, those four writers, they didn't capture, there aren't many things that all four of them capture. But the triumphal entry is one of them. This is in all four Gospels. So apparently it's important. <laughs> Apparently, Jesus and His great sovereignty as He uh, foresaw and planned all that would be written down, He wanted us to make sure we don't miss this story about Him coming into Jerusalem and being praised as the King. All four Gospels record this and all four Gospels account for and and, uh, uh, tell for us how the people respond to Jesus. And this time, for once, the people get it right If you're reading through Mark, it's refreshing to find people doing the right thing. And they respond in worship. Again, maybe a a contrast for the British monarchy would be helpful. How do people respond when they see or hear the British monarchy? Somebody in the royals going out about, we ooh and ah over their weddings. I don't remember, I didn't look that one up, but uh, the last wedding. All the millions of people who watched it live all around the world, we ooh and ah. We gossip about their personal lies. People wait hours to see them and just try to snag one little picture and millions of people buy their books. When Jesus shows up as king, people sing and people bow down in worship. That's the response to the true king. My invitation to you today is to worship Jesus as the king. Worship Jesus because he's the king. These handful of verses in Mark 11 make it really true, true he's the king. But if you were paying attention closely, you're like, wait, wait, that wasn't actually said, Philip. I'm going I'm to call you on that, Philip. Where, it didn't say he's king. How do you get that he's the king? Well, let's follow through. The word kingdom shows up. But what we see here is no doubt about he's the king. For one, we get a glimpse of his divine knowledge. Did you hear how he planned this, this entry into the city? He told two of his disciples to go into town And he told them what they were going to find before they found it. 
He said, you're going to go into the village, you're going to see a colt, you're going to untie it, and when you do, when they ask you why you're doing it, tell them the Lord has need of it, and then bring it here. So two of the disciples go, and sure enough, it's exactly as they were told. They find it where he said they'd find it. Somebody asks what you're doing, and he gives, they give the response Jesus told them to give, and they bring it to Jesus. You could just skim over those details, but that's an important piece of this story to see that Jesus being not just a man. He was fully man, but he was not just a man. He is divine, and so he has divine knowledge. He sees things and understands things and knows things that no mere human could know. Nobody else could be able to see into some place that they couldn't see. Picture in John 1 when Jesus invites Nathaniel and Nathaniel comes and asks about him. Jesus said, I could see you under the tree before you even came. Jesus read people's thoughts before they even spoke them. Jesus knew what was going to happen before it happened. He is divine. In his, in his, uh, uh, oh, I could chase this one too far, but I'll, I'll give just a short version. He, he, being willing to submit to coming to the earth he did not hold on to all of his omniscience, all of his all-knowing. So he at times says, I don't know. You know, he says, I doesn't know when he's going to return. He doesn't know the second coming. He submitted himself. He emptied himself and become, of some of his divine properties so that he could walk on earth and that he could imitate or show for us a true submission to the Father. He submitted to the Father in a way that he didn't have full divine knowledge. So he was giving of himself. And he, he showed that, he, he modeled that for us. And then, of course, after the death and resurrection, his ascension, now he does have all knowledge, so he does know when he is coming back. But even here, you can see his divine knowledge. He knew things before they happened. This is not just a regular guy. This is not just some average Joe who's going to try to come and take over the kingship of this land. He is more than human. He is divine. And all of his glory, all of his splendor, the people began to recognize this is special. Those two disciples, when they bring that colt back, they take the cloaks off their back and they lay it over the donkey or the colt for him to ride on. And they do that on this donkey, verse 2, it says, on one on which no one has ever sat. Both those pictures, laying the cloak and, and this donkey that no one's ever sat, uh, are pictures, descriptions of something that is undefiled and pure. They're preserving this. This has been set aside for royalty. This is not just... Some, some donkey that's been beat to death over all these years of work. No, this is one who is set aside and preserved for this moment. And his disciples throw, the, throw their cloaks over it. They're showing respect and honor for, for the king, for the one who is going to ride on it. They're showing honor to the one who is sitting on the donkey. So also all the pilgrims around Jesus, the people that had been coming with Jesus up to the temple, they too recognize the royalty that is in their midst. And in an even greater step of humility, they, they too take their cloaks off, but not just for Jesus to sit on, to go on the back of the donkey, but to go on the ground for the donkey to walk across. It was a symbol similar to the way we would roll out a, a red carpet for somebody. This is not that the, the donkey somehow needed help. You know, oh, there's a mud puddle and the donkey couldn't walk through it. You know, it is, it's symbolic. It's a picture of, of humility and a picture of giving royal treatment, a place of honor to this one who's riding on the donkey. And what do they say? They quote from the Old Testament, a psalm of, of messianic praise, Psalm 118, blessed is the coming kingdom, or, or Hosanna, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. He is, they are remembering, they are celebrating 
This is the king we've been waiting on. They know that he is the king. When they sing about the kingdom, this is the one who is bringing in the kingdom. And if you're following along in Mark, there's a, a pretty dramatic shift at this point. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus, he's at times attracted a crowd. At times there's been kind of a following, but he's mostly been in, in the Galilee area, kind of rural. And he's even told people, hey, don't, don't tell everybody yet. Don't spread the word too far yet. And this could not have been more public. This was the capital city, Jerusalem, on one of the biggest celebrations of the year, Passover, on a very public place, the Mount of Olives, coming down into the city. At the end of this day, basically everybody in the city would have known what Jesus just did. He's gone public. He has displayed who He is to everybody around. Because He's the King. And He's come so that people would know Him. The secrecy is over. And He's come to show that He has given, He's coming, as we saw last week, to give His life as a ransom for many. This would not be done in secret. Jesus was not crucified secretly at midnight. He was crucified in broad daylight for all to see. Jesus was coming to make public His salvation. And He did all this in deliberate fulfillment of a prophecy. Unlike Matthew and John, Mark does not quote Zechariah 9.9 directly, but the same wording and image is there. I think Mark knew exactly what Jesus was doing too. Mark, uh, Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah was prophesying about this king who would come, the Messiah who would come, and the way you know he's coming is he comes not on a war horse, but on a donkey. You see, Jesus did not have to come with a sword and a, a weapon as if he was a foreign king coming to take over somebody else's city. He was coming to the city that already belonged to him. So he could come on a colt. He could come on a donkey. He could come on a peaceful animal. First Kings chapter 1, when, when David is about to die and about to pass away and He's already said Solomon is going to be the next king. There's a, another person who rises up and tries to claim that they are the true king. Bathsheba comes and tells David about it. And the way David makes it clear that Solomon is the next king is that Solomon puts, I mean, king David put, tells Solomon to get on his mule, on the, on the king's mule. A mule is not going to take over a city. <laughs> a mule is a, a beast of burden. It is slow. It is peaceful. But by Solomon riding on David's mule, he was parading through and saying, I, I don't have to take over Jerusalem. It already belongs to me. And so Jesus was saying as he came in that day, he did not come to take it over. It's already his. And so is every other city and every other country in the world. Jesus is the king. So no, it doesn't say Jesus is king in your passage. But I hope you can see it might as well have. It is very clear. Jesus is making a clear declaration about his kingship as he comes into the city. And we, like those around him, would be right to worship him as king. To worship Jesus because he is the king. Because he is the king, worship him. As they quote Psalm 118, the word Hosanna literally means save us. or Save us, we pray. It is a request. It's a, it's a song of praise, but it's also a request for help saying, I, I, need, I need help. The way you honor somebody who has power to help is you ask for it. You ask for it. 
And so the people cry out, Hosanna, save us, we need help. Do you cry out for help from Jesus? When you need something, where do you turn? Who do you look to? Where does your salvation come from? Perhaps if you've been around the church, you know something about the Bible, you know, hey, salvation can only come from the Lord. But so often we picture that as I made that decision back then, but today I'll do it on my own, thank you. Jesus helped me back then, but today I've got my bank account. Jesus helped me back then, but today I've worked hard to get where I am, and I know how to fix things, and I know how to solve problems. I know Jesus was back then, but today I'm okay. The people around Jesus knew that every day is a day to cry out, Hosanna, save us, we pray. We need His salvation, yes, once and for all, but also day by day. The way you honor the true king is to realize you need his help and to ask for it. I've been struck firstly by this, by verse 8, when it describes them spreading their cloaks on the road. And and I just wonder, without allegorizing this too much, if that that might be a symbol that you, you would pick up this week. What does it look like you to, 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 for you to take off your cloak and lay it before Jesus? What does it look like you to, to humbly submit, maybe in some kind of tangible way, but to, to, to lay yourself before the Lord and say, I, I, I'm, I'm here to worship you. I want to reverence you. I want to put, uh, revere you. I want to honor you. Maybe it's in something as simple as the way you spend your time. God, God is not a God of legalism that sits and keeps track. I mean, he knows everything, but he's not got some clipboard somewhere saying, oh, they spent 14 minutes in worship for me today, and tomorrow it's an hour. Wow, but zero for three days in a row. God is not legalistic, okay? Don't, don't go that direction. But if you, if you love somebody, you spend time with them, don't you? How, are you? how are you submitting? How are you honoring? How are you glorifying God in the way you spend your time? We all make time for what matters most. Do you make time to spend with your Savior? Do you you take off the the busyness cloak and lay it at His feet and submit to Him? Or do you make some sacrifices, pulling off some commitments or sleep or whatever else, and lay it before Him and say, I'm here. I'm here to be with you. What about the rich man we saw a few weeks ago? Jesus said the cloak he had to take off was his possessions. Maybe literally, like those cloaks. I I don't know if your cloak can survive a donkey walking over it and you use it the next day. I don't know. Maybe they didn't get to, maybe that was literally giving it away. Maybe you literally got to give some things away. What does it look like for you to lay things before the Lord, to live a life of praise? Whatever it is, is a posture of the heart primarily. Is your heart about honoring God or honoring yourself? Do you wake up every day seeking to sing Hosanna, save us? Or wake up every day saying, how can I do what I need to do for me? Who's Whose name are you glorifying? Whose name are you praising? Whose name is on your lips? What are your words doing? What are they focused on? Are you focused on worship? Or are you focused on yourself? Jesus invites us by by displaying His royalty, by displaying His majesty. He invites us to a life of praise. At some point or another, we, we have to trust Him as King. And if we trust Him, we will praise Him. But that's hard to do. And you know why? Because Jesus isn't always the king we want. Jesus isn't always the king we want. 
Verse 9 and 10, this group of pilgrims who are coming into Jerusalem, probably from Galilee like Jesus, they quote Psalm 118 saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then when they say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. What do you think they meant by that? They probably meant the same thing the disciples were thinking a couple chapters ago when they asked, who's the greatest? And they were arguing about it. They probably meant the same thing that the two disciples that we saw last, last week, I don't know that was, yeah, last week, James and John, they were arguing about who was going to be on his right and left hand. They are picturing, the disciples, everybody around Jesus at this point, they are picturing that this is the guy who will finally dethrone the Roman Empire who's ruling over Israel. The king has come, and no longer will Caesar be emperor over us. No longer will Herod be king over us. No longer will Pilate be the governor of Jerusalem. We're going to take back our city, and Rome shall be no more. That's what they're picturing. The king, the king has come. The kingdom of David, they're picturing back a thousand years ago, the, the high point of the kingdom of Israel. David had solidified the kingdom. Israel was, there was peace in the land and he hands off the kingdom to Solomon and Solomon's the wisest there was and all this, the glory of the political kingdom of Israel and they're thinking today is the day it's come back. Jesus is here, the king is here, the Messiah is here and we will have our kingdom once again. You know what happened? Or what was true a week, a week and a day after Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey? Pilate was still governor over, over Jerusalem. Herod was still king over Judea. And Caesar was still emperor in Rome. They got nothing they asked for. All the political hopes and dreams were dashed when Jesus was crucified on a cross. And even the resurrection did not bring about the political reign that they wanted. In fact, the Roman Empire would continue to reign for hundreds of years. They never got what they hoped for. Can you still worship a king if he doesn't give you what you want? Can you still worship a king if he isn't answering the prayers you're asking for? If you're praising him and asking him to show up and to do the things that you think he should do that make total sense to you and are good requests, can you still praise him? Listen, if we were in the first century world and we were watching all this unfold and we didn't have the New Testament yet, and we were going, okay, we got option A over here, Roman Empire, or option B over here, Jesus. Who do we want to be the, the political king over this? I think all of us would pick Jesus, right? All of us, okay, I don't, I'll just say for me. I would pray, if I was in that, that day and age, I would pray, get rid of this guy, Pilate. He looks awful. He doesn't have a backbone. Get rid of Herod. He's doing all kinds of weird things with marriage and remarriage. No, he's not good. Caesar, who knows? This isn't, we want Jesus. It doesn't matter how good they were. They're not Jesus. Pick Jesus. Pray for Jesus to be the king. That would be much better. And they didn't get what they asked for. They didn't get the political leader they wanted. And we struggle with that, don't we? We struggle with Jesus being king, supposedly the Bible tells us, right? And yet, we've prayed and things don't go our way. And it's not even just the selfish things that don't go our way. They are good things we ask. And yet sometimes Jesus says no to good things. 
Jesus, by, by not dethroning Pilate, he was not saying Pilate's a good guy. You should just hang out with him. Sometimes we struggle when the good king we know and believe and want Jesus to be doesn't do the good things we think he should do. He's not the king we want sometimes. And kings are like that, aren't they? We don't get a vote. We don't get to tell them what we want them to do, even if it's a good idea. They don't have to take our opinion because they're the king and we're not. And that's terrifying. It is terrifying to serve a king who is good and yet doesn't always listen to our good ideas. But you know what would be more terrifying? Is if God had to listen to all my ideas and go with what I thought. That'd be way worse. So it's good, but it's not always fun. It's not always easy. Sometimes it's really, really hard. Sometimes we ask for things that just seem so clear about what's good and what's bad, and we still get a no. We ask for the cancer to go away. We ask for the family member to get the job that surely this is the best next step for them. We ask about houses to sell or good things to happen to our loved ones or whatever else it may be. And it's easy for us to say, how could this not be the will of God? How could the God who is king over all things, over all the universe, not do the thing that we think he should do? Even with the best of intentions. Many times in our lives, we can, we can be at that spot where he's not the king we want. And we have a hard time right there. We've all, we've all seen examples of, of somebody who has a, a title of power, like the CEO or, you know, the politician that's been elected. But the more we dig into it, realize they're not really the one in charge. You know how that goes sometimes? Really, the, the power is that influential donor that gives to the campaign. Or the, or the, 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 the CEO has to report to this other supply chain person. And if they say, say something, that's going to happen. Doesn't matter what this, whatever it may be. Sometimes we come to Jesus and we say, yes, you can have the title of king. You sit on the throne just so long as you let me interject my two cents every now and then and you do what I say on those moments. We want him to be king in name. We want him to have the responsibility. And when things go wrong, we want it to blame on him. But eh, we want to get our, make sure we get our, our, our say in sometimes, which means who do we really want to be king? Us. There can only be one king. Praise God it's not, praise God it's not us. But that's hard to stomach. We, we often want to dethrone the righteous, holy, majestic king and replace him with somebody we think is better, usually ourselves. We don't always like the things that Jesus the king does. And so it's hard for us to worship him when he's not the king we want. But when we can see him for who he is, when we can see his justice, when we can see His love, when we can see His mercy, we can see his, the fact that He is eternal, has always been and will never not be. When we can see the fact that He can see all things and has a, an incredible mission. When we can see just, just a little glimpse of that and trust it, He might not be the King we want. But we learn to trust He's the King we need. This is why you worship Jesus. Not because He always does what you want. We worship Jesus because He's always the King we need. He's always the King we need. 
The pilgrims that were walking with Jesus that day were proclaiming a truth that they didn't even fully understand, which is probably what I do most often. <laughs> they, they were proclaiming about this coming kingdom of David, and they thought political. Jesus had a much bigger mission in mind. Jesus is the one who is the son of David, like Bartimaeus knew, the blind man we saw last week. But he came to do something far greater than King David ever did. Jesus came in fulfillment of the prophecy, the promise, the covenant that God had given to David in 2 Samuel 7. God had told David, 2 Samuel 7, uh, 12 and 13, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Three times, God told David, there's a king who's coming from your line, and he's going to reign not just for one generation, but forever. Forever. How is that possible? How is it possible that somebody could reign forever? Well, he surely couldn't just be a man. He had to be fully man and fully God. And Jesus proved that with His death and His resurrection, that He is the eternal King. The only way to have an eternal King is to have one who sits on an eternal throne. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus did not come to reign over one time and one place. He came to reign over all forever. You see, they asked for something that they thought was great. Take down Pilate. Take down Herod, take down Caesar, give us back our nation. That seemed like a good request. And that, would have, that was a big request, right? To, to dethrone an entire government? That was way too small. That was way too small of a goal for Jesus to go after. He had his heights set infinitely higher than Pilate, Herod, and Caesar. Those guys all died. Jesus did win. He outlasted them just fine without having to answer their requests. But Jesus' eyes were not on them, Pilate, Herod, and Caesar. His eyes were on Satan, sin, and death. That's who Jesus came to defeat in Jerusalem. He had his, high, his, his goals set way higher than they expected. Their request was too small. What if the, the things we're asking Jesus are too small? What if the things we're asking for that seem gigantic, take the cancer away, get a new job out of a nothing. How, how in the world is this going to happen? Make all these things in my circumstances change that just seem like an absolute miracle. This feels like a huge request to ask Jesus, and here I'm laying it at your feet. What if your eyes are looking, looking way too low? What if he has a much bigger goal in mind? What if he wants to take our sinful, wicked hearts and conform us to the image of Christ? What if He wants to make your life look like the life of His Son? Let me tell you, that's a much bigger miracle than the cancer going away. That's a much bigger miracle than your finances all being smooth. Listen, money comes from who knows where. God can shuffle money around. Your heart, that's, a, that's something only God can do. Salvation to the lost Salvation to the ends of the earth. People in unknown uh, in places around the world that have never heard the gospel, hearing the gospel and responding in faith. These are miracles that only God can do. And sometimes our requests 
are just way too low. Praise God that He isn't limiting Himself to only the things we ask for. Praise God that He doesn't keep His vision on the small little kingdoms that we so often worry about. Praise God that His kingdom is eternal, not just one time, one place, one group of people. Jesus didn't reign over one nation and one generation. He reigned over all things. And He came to redeem a people to Himself from all tribes and nations and languages. And that is a miracle much greater than anybody in Jerusalem was praying for. He's not the king they wanted. But he's the king all of us here 2,000 years later really, really needed. And that means he's worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our worship. Praise God that he has a much bigger vision, a much bigger vision, a much bigger call a much better idea for what we are doing and he has invited us to participate in that kingdom sometimes our plans are far too small and so in that moment we've got to trust God I'm asking for this and it doesn't seem like you're answering it so I'm trusting you got a bigger plan and that's a hard place to be that is a hard place to be but it's a place of faith and it's a place of worship. If we can see Jesus for who He is, we will worship Him even when He says no. Even when He says wait. Even when He says maybe later. Because we can trust He's the King that we truly need. The world surely would crumble immediately if Jesus gave me everything I asked for. Jesus has a much bigger view, a much higher view. What does it look like for you to worship that kind of Jesus? The true Jesus, the one who really is reigning over all things. Can you submit your life to Him? Can you trust Him? Can you wait on Him? Can you pray fervently and passionately? Listen, if you hear my, my, this, this message and you say, well, I'm not going to pray because Jesus is just going to you know, do what He wants. You've, you've, you've missed Jesus' heart here. God is a, a loving Heavenly Father who loves to give good gifts to His children. He loves to answer our prayers. He loves to give us the things we ask for. Over and over again, he tells parables of persistent people who are coming and pleading. Don't stop pleading. Don't stop asking. Sometimes it's in the pleading that he gets the glory because you waited and waited and you trusted that he was going to answer. And he just said, wait, and waited 10 years, 20 years, 30 years to answer your prayer. Don't stop pleading. But if you keep pleading and you still get a no, can you still worship him? If so, then you're trusting he's king and I'm not. Jesus Himself, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark 14, we'll get to eventually. And one of the ways He was emptying Himself, one of the ways He was laying down His, his omniscience, is that He prayed, let this cup pass from me. I, I know what's coming. He, he had the, the, the divine knowledge. He knew what was coming the next day. He knew the cross. He knew the shame. He knew what was coming. And He said, yet not what I will, but what you will. Even Jesus himself was willing to submit his prayers and say, if you don't give me what I want, Father, I still trust you're good. It's because he trusted. that The king isn't always the one we want, but he's always the one we need. He's always the one we need. The night, Jesus was, the night before Jesus was crucified, if you'd have polled his disciples and said, hey, does anybody think it's a good idea for Jesus Tonight, to be arrested falsely, to be accused of things he didn't 
really do, to be talk, taken through this, this awful mockery of a trial, to be flogged, to be just shamed, mocked, spit on, and then crucified. Raise of hands, disciples. Anybody think that's a good idea? Is that what anybody here wants? Everybody would have said no. Praise God he did it. Praise God that he does what we sometimes don't think he should do because he knows what's best. He doesn't give us what we want sometimes, a lot of times. Praise God he always gives us what we need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus, especially God, for accomplishing our salvation on a cross outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. It is finished. Praise God that you came to accomplish what we could not accomplish. Father, as we look to all the things we're asking for right now, we humbly admit they may be far too small. And so, God, we trust you that you have bigger things going on, that you're about the work that only you can accomplish. And so we, Lord, lean on you, trust in you today to be king. God, forgive us when we try to put ourselves in your seat and make your decisions for you. God, may your generous heart and loving nature and your mercy and your kindness draw us to you over and over again. And as we come, God, may we come not demanding, not requiring, not thinking our ways are right, but may we come with our cloaks laid on the floor, worshiping you. Hosanna. Save us, we pray. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.